Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Welcome to the show, Ken. Hey, it's great to be back, Trey. Well, it's great to have you back. Uh, you know, last week I got to be part of the three-man show with Mike and Jay, which is always di- a little different. You know, we, we each have our own take on how we do things. So it's nice. We get to, it's, This is more of home base again for me. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, 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 you're my home base, Ken, I guess is what I'm saying. It's, it, this is my love letter to you. Anyway, uh, but in all seriousness, uh, this week what we're going to be doing on the show is we're going to be talking about the Russian conflict, uh, what's been going on there. Obviously, we had a chance to, to talk preliminarily about that last week, uh, but we'll speak more about that and with Ken this week. Uh, we're going to also talk about the developing uh, criminal potential activity being uncovered by the January 6th uh, committee against Trump and Trump associates. Uh, and then we're going to move on to talking about Biden's State of the Union address this past week. We're going to talk about the new White House COVID strategy. We're going to talk about the Texas primary. Uh, and then uh, uh, we're going to talk about a couple of surprises court cases with some reach that came out this past Wednesday. Uh, And so that's what we're going to be doing in just a moment. Okay, so Ken, a lot of things are going on this week in Russia. As a matter of fact, if if listeners or anything like me, you spend a lot of your time just trying to kind of figure out where are we and what's going on in Russia. So, you know, last week I had a chance for, you know, to kind of offer my uniquely weird perspective with Mike and Jay. Uh, you know, Mike and Jay are a little bit more of those kind of real politics guys when it comes internationally. Um, so let's get us up to speed is what's happening in Russia as of Friday, March 4th. Uh, so uh, Friday morning, Russian forces seized the largest nuclear plant in Europe after some massive shelling on it. That's probably one of the biggest stories going on this morning. Uh, the, the massive downside, of course, to massive shelling at a nuclear site is the potentiality that we could have a fire and a nuclear disaster of some sort taking place, which was a lot of what was going on in the headline. Um, the Ukraine has noted that Russia is raising the specter of a nuclear disaster, and, and probably rightfully so. Russia, on the other hand, is actually saying this is all part of the Ukrainian Nazi plot. Yeah, it sounds like a a weird television show, but that was the response. Uh, Additionally, after the attack, uh, the mayor of the nearby city uh, was forced to kind of read almost a hostage white paper uh, claiming a number of knowingly untrue things uh, that Russians, for example, were only using blanks, which is kind of a bizarre position to be in. Uh, Although, in in, in all honesty, it appears from the video that he's in distress uh, and kind of almost doing that at gunpoint. Uh, meanwhile, Russia and the south of Ukraine have finally claimed their first major city of Kherson. Uh, this has been part of the heavily shelled region in the south. Uh, the Russian military column that has been headed for the capital the last 48 hours or so continues to remain stalled uh, to the best of anybody's knowledge as a result of a lack of fuel, supply lines, and potentially food. Uh, <clears throat> the question, of course, on the, anal- the uh, analyst side has been, well, 
is this behind schedule? Is Ukraine holding up? Or is there, in fact, uh, this what was planned by Russia? And that is, of course, a big point of contention uh, between Russia and the rest of the EU. Military analysts in the United States have been arguing that this clearly is showing uh, a problematic struggle that they can't get in and, and control the, uh, Ukraine as quickly as they thought and are pointing towards a long, in some cases, decades-long struggle that could be taking place here. Uh, likewise, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin continues to argue that everything is going according to plan. Meanwhile, as a result of the sanctions that we had been talking about last week and additional sanctions placed on uh, Russia this week, the Russian market continues to crash. As a matter of fact, uh, the Russian market has remained historically closed for the longest amount of time ever. As of the moment that I wrote this, uh, the ruble sits at 221 rubles to the dollar as of this moment. But of course, the market not being open means that's actually probably a lot lower than what it's showing on the screen. When you take a look at that, um, Putin, as a matter of fact, this in, in, in an interesting want to talk about this can move actually asked for no more sanctions. He uh, argued that there is no ill intent uh, uh, with this. Uh, but then meanwhile, in a phone call with French President Macron, uh, he tells us that the worst has yet to come. That's a lot going on, Ken. And so I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts overall. We oftentimes do the international thing. But I also thought I want to kind of spin it this way. You know, Mike and Jay, they're pretty united in their uh, uh, policy positions that I noted at the beginning here. They're kind of those real politics guys. They're cold warriors. Do you agree with that kind of take on what's going in here? Um, what, what international relations lens do you think is the best way to be viewing the crisis in the, in the Ukraine? and how might our response ought to be uh, applied by that? So a chance for you to weigh in on this, Ken. Yeah, well, first, I have to apologize. You, you have me at a disadvantage because I didn't hear what Mike and Jay had to say last week. I should have listened to oh. last week's show, but I haven't. So um, you, you characterized it as, as real real politic. But um, would you mind just for my benefit, like briefly summarizing it so I could respond to it? So, in short, the idea that that uh, the, the traditional balance of power theorem that we need to show and maintain military strength in the face of enemies so that they won't undertake these kinds of activities, and that the fact that we haven't taken that seriously is the reason why we see these kinds of bullying aggression from Russia to kind of just quickly sum that up yeah well i I guess i I don't completely share that perspective i mean i i in, in a certain sense, you know, I would also characterize myself as as a cold warrior, and I'm I'm a big fan of what the the West was able to do in terms of containment um, during the Cold War. But I would also note the limits of what the U.S. was able to do during mm-hmm. the Cold War. You know, so I mean, the the U.S. and the West were not able to do a single thing about it when when Stalin, you know, marched into Czechoslovakia and put mm-hmm. down the Prague Spring or or um you know essentially kept all the territory that he had agreed with Hitler that he would get under the Hitler Stalin pact. Um you know there there was nothing because because the one thread that ran through the whole Cold War was that because both powers were nuclear powers and a nuclear war could mean the the end of the world um, no, no American soldier ever fired a single shot at a, at a Russian soldier or vice versa during the entire Cold War. And, and I think that was necessary um, in order to literally save the world. So I, I think, you know, Biden is similarly as constrained as, as Truman and, and Kennedy and, and people that you might look at and say they were stronger cold warriors than, um, than, than, than Biden. But they, they didn't really do anything um, more, uh, I think, than what Biden is doing now um, during the whole Cold War. And it was fought, you know, in terms of a lot of maneuvering and a lot of uh, proxy battles outside the, the immediate Soviet sphere of influence and, um, uh, and, and, and things like that. And so I, I give Biden a lot of credit for what he's doing. I, I actually think he's doing everything possible short of uh, having U.S. troops engage with Russian troops. And I, I don't think um, it, it's I don't think it's possible to have U.S. troops engage with Russian troops. And I, I don't think any U.S. president has ever thought that it was. Now, to kind of add into that, one of the other things that makes this particular encounter different than the Cold War, uh, and you're right while you have these 
proxy fights during the Cold War, you know, we're actually seeing large scale ground invasions in Europe. Do you think the fact that we have actual traditional fighting taking place in Europe, making this potentially a different kind of situation than it was during the Cold War, maybe a, a different a, a different sets of tools might need to be used? No, no, I don't believe it is different. Uh, I believe the, the Soviets did send actual ground troops into Czechoslovakia, into Hungary, into Poland. Um, and um, the, the U.S. and the West just could not respond in kind with, with ground troops. They sent massive ground troops into um, East Germany, um, including even, you know, they, they did the Berlin blockade, which we responded to not by shooting our way through, but by doing the uh, Berlin airlift to, to bring mm -hmm. um, supplies in. So I, I don't think it's different in kind at all. I think um, the, the main way that the Soviets maintained a sphere of influence in Eastern and Central Europe during the entire Cold War was by deploying the Red Army there um, in the confidence that um, the Western, Western ground troops would not, would not show up there. So now another element of this that we didn't have a chance to reflect on last week was, well, for one, Putin, Putin had not yet made, and, it, and it's difficult to say exactly what it means other than being a threat, but the idea of having nuclear forces on high alert combined with what we saw this morning, which was pretty much a disregard uh, for uh, worry about nuclear fallout in terms of the traditional shelling of a nuclear site. Do you think that given the conditions of what we're going on, I mean, maybe the closest example of where we have kind of this active nuclear threat might be uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. In, in the context of that, what do you think? I mean, you say you, you support the Biden position, and I, and I can understand uh, understand that. But does this give you pause or make you wonder about, does this make anything different again, I guess, from the Cold War era? Yeah, I mean, one thing that is is slightly different, um, I, I think if you're going to, um, so in the Cold War era, um, I think the 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 the, the areas that were inside the Soviet Union and Ukraine would have been one of those areas. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the West didn't really even try in, in any particular way um, to, to try to, uh, you know, pick off those, those regions and, and, and pull them towards the West. So more of the, more of the maneuvering and wrangling went on in areas um, further West than that. And I think, you know, the, the West was actually successful in both Austria and, and Finland in, um, Pulling those two countries out of the Soviet sphere of influence, um, the, the 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 West was less successful um, in all the other countries in Czechoslovakia, in Hungary, and in, in Poland, um, where where there were uprisings and and people in those countries, you know, did want to get out from under the knuckle of the Soviet Union, and you know th there was some limited efforts to 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 help them with that, but it, none really succeeded. Um, so um, you know, in in terms of that, you know, I think Ukraine. And you use the Cuban Missile Crisis example, and, and I, I think I used that the last time you and I talked about that as well. Um, Ukraine is really, you know, right on the border of Russia. Um, and so that's different than um, countries like Czechoslovakia and Hungary and, and Poland, where there's some distance there. And, you know, I think, um, you know, although I don't believe that the, that the U.S., um, would would have um, used any kind of alliance with Ukraine to to launch any kind of military attack on Russia under any circumstances. Um, I, I I do um, understand why um, Putin would be afraid of that um, in the same kind of way that the U.S. was afraid. You know that you know it's one thing for Russia to be a nuclear nation; it's another thing for Russia to put those nuclear missiles on Cuba, ninety miles away from here. So I, I can certainly see why. Um, what seemed like a, a, a drift towards all of the Eastern European countries joining uh, NATO uh, might might have struck um, Putin as a somewhat existential threat. Um, you know, as 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 the NATO umbrella comes closer and closer and closer to the Russian border. So I I do understand that. I think that's why you know you and I might have talked about these issues a month or two ago, and I think we both predicted that ultimately. Um, Putin's sense of this being an existential threat means that it's it will be very hard for him to back down. Um, mm -hmm. And and in some sense, it's going to be the U.S. That, and the West that are going to have to figure out how to work out an accommodation or a, a compromise that can bring an end to the conflict.
Well, you know, as the team that I think, as once upon a time I've, I've said before, we make the most predictions. Uh, if you go back to that show, we almost have the exact day correct for yeah. our, yeah. the time. Because remember, we talked about it in terms of the Olympics and then how, you know, how much post-Olympics did we think that the, the conflict was going to yeah. occur. And we almost had it down to the day. Again, you know, I, I, I always wonder, how much should we toot our own horn? But yeah, I mean, yeah. I think we were right. Uh, because again, I think sometimes it's easy to forget that there are institutional and structural reasons why people behave on average the way that they do. It's, I think a lot of times there's this thought, well, thing, the behavior is kind of uh, randomly distributed. And it's not. Um, as a social scientist, at least, I don't, I don't think it is. I mean, you're a lawyer, but I'm sure you agree. You know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> sure, let, me, let me respond to you yeah, because I, I do agree. And so the Olympics, yeah, I mean, apparently I saw some news reporting. And I think you were the one who was more sensitive to the Olympics than me. But I saw some news reporting this week that China, in fact, did ask Putin – uh, not yes. to do anything until after the Olympics. So that, you know, your idea that the Olympics were going to be highly relevant, you know, I think has proved out. Um, the, the, the other thing I think when we think about the kind of threats that Putin perceives, you know, one one thing I would kind of, the one way I've been trying to think about this is um, I, I think it's in a way very, um, you know, fanciful. If he's if he's worried that the U.S. Um, was going to launch a military attack against Russia, you know, I, I think he's kind of, you know, I mean, he he might have a fear of that because of history. But that seems to me to have not not been a serious thing. Like, I don't think the U.S. was considering attacking Russia. But on the other hand, I think there is one kind of threat, a different kind of threat that UK, Ukraine does really pose to Russia. And that's sort of the the threat by example, right, that the more. The more um, Eastern Europe, you know, right up to Russia's borders, really looks West and, and wants to be a Western style democracy and wants to be part of the European Union and wants to be part of NATO, um, it makes it more and more untenable for Russia to maintain the kind of system that it has, right? Because they become an outlier with a uniquely bad system. And, and now, you know, all of their own citizens and residents, you know, can, you know, have you know, relatives in places like Ukraine or do get to travel to places like Ukraine. And, you know, the closer um, the West moves as, as an example of a, a just a, a much more desirable system and a much more desirable way of life, um, I think that that's the kind of true existential threat that um, that that um, that a country like Ukraine, if it was left on its own and became more successful and more Western, it's it's a it's a political threat that it poses to the the system in in Russia. I think you're absolutely right about that, and and I would actually take that further and make a different kind of prediction forward from this. Now that I've had more time and data to to think about it, and that is as we take a look at what Putin has done. In some ways, he has offered. Uh, a positive. And I, 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 careful in what I mean by this here. What I'm saying is, is that by him flex, flexing in this way for, as you, I think, are rightfully noting, that kind of existential political threat, he has reinvigorated the importance of liberal democracy. And I think that liberal democracy was something in many of the major uh, Western countries we had almost seen be seen as potentially bad or maybe being questioned in a new way. And I think by having the external threat that he has now posed, he has once again created a space where, you know, it's a reminder of the importance of the rights, liberties, and the systems that comes in a liberal democracy uh, where the ballot box is what, the rightful ballot box is what determines things. And you don't have to look any further than some of the consternations that, that individuals like Tucker Carlson has had to go through to kind of, well... I love Putin, but I can't like ugh, I love America. Like, how do I how do I deal with this? And I mean, again, I don't particularly give give to any things about Tucker Carlson, but rather that larger question of I think it becomes more difficult to in these broad strokes attack liberal democracy in a way that I, I think we saw occurring inside of some advanced Western democracies. Uh, what, what do you think about that? It's complicated. Um, you know, I think there are some countries, I would probably identify Hungary and Turkey, um, which are 
very far from being liberal democracies. Hungary's but, a great AI. Yeah. yeah, but but they want to be in NATO, and they and they 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 do feel threatened by Russia, right? So I, I don't know that I would I would say that the dividing line is necessarily between the the liberal democracies and the authoritarian regimes, um, because there's some authoritarian regimes who are actually all you know also threatened by Russia and also want to be in in NATO, you know. And then you know the Tucker Carlson thing I think is also complicated because I think Putin's Russia is more or less the ideal state in the mind of someone like a, a Tucker Carlson. And that that's why he's been a, a fan of um, Putin, right? It's it's authoritarian. It, it's a white country. It's it's a country where, um, um, fo- you know, the religious right has a great deal of power over social norms. Well, there's um, no gays, as I understand it. There's no gays, it. right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think everything that, that Tucker Carlson sort of stands for, Putin's Russia sort of, sort of stands for. And I think that's why he was the last, um, you know, major pundit, I think, you know, even after the war started, who was still really uh, much propagandizing in favor of Putin. And I think the only reason he backed down is because it, it wasn't um, it, his, his own viewers weren't buying it. Right. That, that there's an overwhelming uh, sentiment um, in the United States, even among Fox News viewers, um, that, that there's um, there, there's just a, a, a something very wrong about Putin invading Ukraine. And and part of that, I think, is because um, uh, President Zelensky has just been so heroic and so telegenic um, that the American public as a whole is really uh, identifying with him. And I think that's the only reason that um, uh, Tucker Carlson had to back down. I think he couldn't quite bring his audience with him. And so he he, um, had to move back towards them. I, I agree. And I would say, again, I think that's an example of a solidifying of that liberal democratic principle. Uh, but no, I think you're absolutely right to say that it, it's more complicated than just that singular variable. So one more thing on that macro level before we bring it to the American side of the response to Russia in a bigger way. And that is one of the other things that we talked about on the show last week uh, was the effectiveness of sanctions. Now, you know, in, in the international politics literature, uh, one of the things that I had pointed out was that sanctions rarely actually bring about the policy change that w- for which one is hoping for. Now, it can have other kinds of effects, but it generally doesn't actually change the behavior. So, for example, you, you see this happening right now, uh, as we talked about with the, the, the ruble sitting at you know less than pennies on the dollar, um, not necessarily going to be changing the behavior of Putin. So, what do you see as we continue to see these kinds of economic sanctions? Uh, I know you kind of briefly said, hey, I think that Biden's pulling all the levers that he he can or should. What do you think, in your view, what do you think might be the view of the pulling of those levers before we bring it over here in the United States? Yeah, well, first, you know, of course, you're, you're right about the limits of um, sanctions as a um, if, if that's the only tool in your basket. Um, it, it's 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 either not going to do the job or it's going to take a long time to do the job. But, you know, with, within that frame, um, I do think right now the sanctions regime that's actually being imposed on Russia may, may prove to be the most effective sanctions regime in history. Um, and, and, you know, it still, of course, hasn't caused Putin to stop this invasion yet. And I wouldn't expect it to do that tomorrow or the next day. But I, I think the invasion at some point you know, even perhaps after it's completely succeeded and, and Putin has has occupied whatever, um, you know, whatever territory he wants to occupy, he's, you know, managed to, you know, assassinate Zelensky. You know, it, it may happen after all that, but at some point, um, as happened to the Soviets in Afghanistan, um, the, the, um, the, 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 the economics of maintaining an occupation in the face of, of sanctions is, is going to become untenable. And I think that's going to happen a lot sooner here than it happened in Afghanistan, you know, not only because everything's moving faster, but also because the the, the global economies are far more interconnected now um, than, than they were then. And, and you know, for instance, um, you know, Putin, um, he, you know, he has stockpiled a lot of foreign currency. And I think he thought that, you know, that would be some reserves that would get him through a sanctions regime. But 
he, in fact, stockpiled a lot of it in Western financial institutions. Which he can't so, access. Yeah, which he can't access, right? So that's kind of a, a way that, um, you know, a, a modern sanctions regime that has the large buy-in from a large number of Western countries um, in a world where, um, you know, uh, n- not only is finance, you know, completely globalized so that it's hard for him to even access his own money if he can't access the global financial s- system, but also pr- production of various kinds is very globalized so that, um, um, you know, most most goods that are produced in the in the world, you know, on on, a, on an industrial scale, you know, are using you know parts that come from different parts of the world and things like that. And so, you know, a, a sanctions regime that a, a significant amount of the world is buying into, um, you know, is going to bring um, Russia's uh, economy. You know, backwards by by decades, really, and and I think that that politically makes things much more um, unsustainable for him. So I think it's all going to take a toll. I I would pre- I would not predict that it's going to make it impossible for him to carry out this occupation, but but I I would predict that um, it, it may be a shorter occupation, you know, than, than we've seen, you know, when when these kind of um, military uh, operations um, have been launched uh, in, in the past. So let me bring the Russian crisis home to Congress, because there are some changes, obviously, on the United States side. We've been hinting at that a little more. I'm going to make it a little more explicit. One of the other big things to happen this week, Ken, is there's a congressional angle. And we've seen some pretty widespread bipartisan support for Ukraine, which is both unique for the fact that we're seeing bipartisan support, which is something that has not been happening recently for, for many items. But also for this week specifically, a resolution calling on Russia to withdraw from Ukraine. It was a 426 to 3 vote. The three holdouts uh, were Paul Gosar from Arizona, Thomas Massey from Kentucky, and Mass Rosendale from Massachusetts. Now, all three of those are Republicans. Now, the seven-page resolution which uh, they uh, voted against, not a huge document. You can take a look at it yourself if you're a listener. But basically, it demands a ceasefire and a withdrawal of Russian troops. Uh, it uh, supports Ukraine's sovereignty and integrity. It banks uh, backs the ongoing sanctions. It urges partners to deliver uh, defensive aid and also to provide for humanitarian aid and finally to reaffirm support for Article 5 of NATO, the idea that any country should be able to freely determine whether or not they want to uh, petition for membership. Now, we have this interesting, right? So why why the three holdouts? I I was a little bit curious. I'm always kind of following Massey a little bit. Massey argued that he opposed the resolution because, quote, the resolution contains an open-ended call for additional and immediate defensive security assistance, he said. Uh, He went on to, quote, say, this term is so broad that it could include American boots on the ground or, as some of my colleagues have already requested, U.S. enforcement of a no-fly zone, end quote. Elsewhere, he argued in tweets, quote, it expands the geographic scope of the United States commitment to the conflict in Ukraine by condemning the country of Belarus. We should not be seeking to name new enemies or committing to overturning other governments, end quote. What do you think about the votes and the more specific positions by congresspersons on the Ukraine? Uh, and do you think any of this will have any kind of real impact? I mean, obviously, this is vastly bipartisan. I mean, we have three uh, against votes. But do you, do you gather anything from this, Ken? Well, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in Congressman Massey as well. He, he is the congressman who represents the district that includes my workplace, Northern Kentucky University. Um, he's an extreme iconoclast, and uh, he actually does like to explain um, why he makes these iconoclastic votes. And you, you were reading from his tweets there, some of his explanations. You know, I, yeah, he, I he doesn't have exactly with, the Trumpian tweets, right? Uh, you know, he, right, he, right. He, he outlines them. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree. Continue. He sorry. outlines them. Yeah, and I, I, I appreciate that. Um, in this particular case, um, I, I agree with a few of his technical points, but I think they're only technical points. And, you know, ultimately he may be losing the forest for the trees on those. And I, I don't agree with his larger substantive points. So, you know, I think that the technical points that I do agree with, and I, I actually wish Congress would have responded to his concerns and changed the wording a little bit, because I think he's right, um, is that, you know, um, President Biden is saying that we're, we're not going to have a no-fly zone and we're not going to put American boots on the ground in Ukraine. And I think Massey rightly is saying, 
Well, if that's what he's saying, why don't we have that in the resolution? Why, why are we mm-hmm. having a resolution that authorizes him to do those very things that he says he's not going to do? Um, I think Massey's right about that. I, I would have actually rather seen a, 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 a resolution that makes clear the, the limits on, on what kind of force is being authorized, as well as authorizing you know, other kinds of, 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 of actions. Um, but on the other hand, I think you know that wouldn't have caused me to vote against it uh, because I do trust uh, President Biden. You know, I think he has said you know very clearly and very repeatedly um, that that he is not going to um, take this this resolution or 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 his own executive powers um, as as a, um, a, as authority to put boots on the ground in Ukraine or or start a nuclear war. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not that worried about it. I, to me, the, the bigger point here would be to vote in favor of the resolution as a way of um, showing, um, you know, solidarity in the in the United States and in the West um, in opposition to um, what, what Putin is doing and um, authorizing the, the U.S. government to do um, all the types of actions that it's already been doing and, and, and aligning Congress with the White House there. So I, I would have voted for it, but I, I think his point is right that it should it would have probably been better if it would have clarified that limit. His other point about Belarus, I don't agree with at all. I, I think it's quite right that we're condemning Belarus. Belarus has joined Russia um, in these operations and has allowed um, you know, Russian troops to use um, Belarus as a launching point for um, a lot of its military operations here. And uh, it would have been much more difficult for, for Russia um, to, to, to launch these invasions without the cooperation and participation of Belarus. So I'm, I'm not sure why he says um, we shouldn't be seeking to name new enemies. We, we, I mean, they, they're part of the invasion that we're condemning. So why not, um, why, why not name them? Um, and I don't think we have committed to overturning any government. So I think he's exaggerating there. Um, this resolution doesn't commit us even to overturning uh, Putin's government. Um, mm-hmm. it, it just uh, it just it just commits us to um, trying to um, uh, do what we can to support the Ukrainians in repelling the um, invasion. So I. I think he went too far in a few of his claims, but I, 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 I certainly, um, you know, at least respect his idea that um, I think I've, I've, I've drawn an analogy that when Bush came to the Congress um, in 2002 and asked for authorization to use force against Saddam Hussein, um, he said that he only wanted the authorization so that he could um, threaten Saddam Hussein and that he wasn't actually going to get use force. And then as soon as he got the authorization, he used the force. So mm-hmm. I, I could see I can see why Massey is concerned about wording that's too broad. And it is a concern that I share, but I don't share it enough to that, that I really um, change that think vote. He did the right thing. Yeah, it would change that vote. Exactly. Well, and additionally, on the Belarus for additional context, I mean, at one point they had they have been discussing whether or not to actually join in a formal way uh, the military invasion. And that could, as uh, I have thought about, also be a sign of the fact that Putin's not sure he can get it done by himself without additional help, given their scale and ability to move through Ukraine has been pretty limited uh, had they not been able to invade from the north uh, you would not see as many besieged cities currently i do not believe at least at this point in the campaign but well any final thoughts you'd like to add on russia before we move forward ken yeah i mean putin is uh, about 70 years old and i do wonder you know um you know also if if you know when, when, when gorbachev became the premier of the soviet union you know that was right after the brezhnev era and the khrushchev era and i think it was surprising to the west um how sudden the changes were there and how um, gorbachev was really re- representing what i think was the majority view within the soviet union that the the, the soviet people were really sick of uh the, the 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 brezhnev era and the khrushchev era and the, the the authoritarian cold war era and i i do think that um I, it's hard for me to imagine that that what putin is doing is what the russian people want and i i do wonder if whoever succeeds him um you know, will will really uh, be the the next Gorbachev and really make big changes. Yeah, that's a harder one to predict, especially when you talk about being 70. Of course, our last two presidents have been a decade older than that. So, you know, just just for context. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, yeah, but um, but be that as it may, it's still uh, a worthy point in the long term, although I'm I'm just anymore. I'm not sure if I'd I'd quite put the age thing there. Well, why don't we? Well, maybe you're right. (laughs) Well, I mean, 
we're just getting yeah. old. Man, people, uh, yeah. the, the people, clearly. People live forever now. They live forever, and we vote for people and or we allow even in non um uh, in authoritarian, non-democratic regimes, we allow individuals who are older uh, to to hold longer positions of power. I mean, that seems to be a clear trend. Yeah, well, I mean, in Putin's case, probably he's going to hold power as long as he wants to. There's really nothing in their system that would push him out of there. But um, you know, he he still, you know, I, I, you know, I, he may not, he may not. Um, that may not be infinitely long, but you're right. It could be decades. I was probably being optimistic when I was thinking the fact that he's 70 <laughs> meant that his days are numbered. Well, you know, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Thomas Jefferson often uh, – I'm blanking on who he was writing about, but basically said that the best thing that good men could do was to to pray for, you know, his old age to take him. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I, I feel a little bit of that in your comment. Right. And in, in his case, you know, he yeah. was talking about somebody who was in his 40s. It was even for his time was too soon. But that same kind of hopeful, optimistic that uh, nature will run its course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, why don't we move forward to the January 6 uh, um, maneuvers this week? OK, so the January 6 uh, Trump activity uh, can the House January 6th committee in a court filing this week said that there is potential evidence uh, in John Eastman emails uh, with Donald Trump and his associates that Donald Trump and his associates committed crimes specifically in attempting to prevent Congress from certifying the 2020 election results. Following the riot, Eastman, uh, uh, quote, sent an email to Vice President Pence's lawyer stating that the siege is because you and your boss did not do what was necessary to allow this to be aired in a public way so that the American people can see for themselves what happened, end quote, according to the court filing. <clears throat> the court filing goes on to say that later that evening, the plaintiff made a final plea to the vice president uh, saying, I implore you to consider one more relatively minor violation. Those are his words. I implore you to consider one more relatively minor violation of the Electoral Count Act and adjourn for 10 days to allow the legislatures to finish their investigations, as well as to allow a full forensic audit of the massive amount of illegal activity that has occurred here, uh, end quote, according to the committee's documents. In other words, Eastman knew what he was proposing would violate the law, but he nevertheless wanted to go ahead and urge the vice president to take those illegal actions, according to the committee. Now, the House Select Committee, of course, can't investigate crimes, but the Justice Department can. Now, one of the elements of this, I want to follow up with you, Ken, because th- this is my area where I have some uh, legal understanding, but I'm always curious about your next take. I know that lawyers in general uh, have privileged communication with their clients. We've talked about that before on the show. And that is, for listeners, if this is new to you, if, if I'm your lawyer and you tell me everything about your case openly, I cannot then be made to testify in court, kind of letting it all out. Now, However, inside of that privileged communication, there is a narrow slice of communication that can be uncovered, and that's called the crime-fraud exception. Now, the the center idea of the crime-fraud exception, as I understand it, Ken, uh, comes from the United States versus Zolan in 1989, which is where the court ruled, look, the uh, quote, the attorney client privilege is not without its costs. Uh, and the, the element, therefore, is, is that this covers, quote, prior wrongdoing, end quote. It doesn't cover future wrongdoing. And so what the court says in Zolan effectively is, look, of course you can't be uh, subpoenaed on how you've helped your client for things that have already happened. They're coming to you for that. But there is a, a, a moment where you cross over from that. And if you are part actively engaging in the crime, in other words, if you are advising in a way to create a future wrongdoing, then you can't shield that communication under attorney-client privilege. And and that seems to be a big case of of what's going on right here. So do you think that this exception is explicitly uh, applies to Eastman? Eastman's arguing that it does not. Uh, Obviously, in this case, uh, the committee and therefore potentially the Justice Department would be saying it it does. Uh, So walk us through that a little bit. Have I I laid that out properly? And and how does that apply here? So. 
Yeah, you laid it definitely laid it out properly. The the the, the one context I want to put it in before I start responding directly is the the crime fraud exception, which has been cited by the House as a reason for piercing um, attorney client privilege here. That's actually only the third of three re- three reasons that the House gave why there should be no attorney client privilege here. And so it's very possible that the 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 court could decide it on one of the first the first or the second ground and not actually even resolve the, this particular question. But mm. um, I think that the, the simpler ground, which was um, laid out in the House filing, why there's why there's no attorney client privilege here is that there's actually no basis for uh, Eastman to claim that he was Trump's attorney. Right. So he would have the fact that he is an attorney isn't enough. He would have had to be Trump's attorney. Um, and it, it does look as though he was just, you know, some guy who, you know, was representing himself and coming forward and and pressing these theories upon Trump and Trump liked the theories. But that whole time, Trump's lawyer was Rudy Giuliani and, and Trump's team involved, um, uh, you know, the, the, the um, Lynn Wood and uh, um uh, Sydney, uh, Sydney Powell. Sydney Powell. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. That these were Trump's lawyers. That Eastman was never one of Trump's lawyers, and and certainly he was never retained by him, paid any money by him. There's no now, it, retention. Now, I, I don't want to interrupt. I want to ask you a question about that because I, I had I had a question specifically about that one. As I understand yeah. it, if you to have the attorney-client privilege, one of the elements that has to be made is that you have, in some sense, been retained. I, I didn't realize you could ever claim it without being retained in some way. Well, you can in one certain circumstance, but I don't think it applies here. Um, so suppose I go, I go to, um, suppose I go to a lawyer and I, I, for the purpose of trying to retain him and, and he says, well, okay, tell me about your case. And then I tell, and then, and then he says, no, you know what? I'm not going to accept this representation. Um, Information disclosed under those kinds of conditions would also get the attorney-client privilege. So, so for for someone to have attorney-client privilege, they either have to have been the attorney for the the client, or they have to at least have learned the information in a in the context of a conversation where the client was trying to retain them as their attorney and and disclose that information. But there's really no significant evidence other than John Eastman say so um, that that he that he was ever uh, Trump's attorney, and Trump has never said so. So, um, uh, so I, I think it, if, if Donald Trump doesn't file a sworn affidavit saying that John Eastman was his lawyer in this case, I, I think the, the simplest way that a judge could rule against Eastman here would be to say that he finds that Eastman was not Trump's attorney. And so Eastman is not entitled to the um, uh, attorney-client privilege. Um, therefore, not on the needing other the hand, exception. It, therefore, not needing the exception, yeah, that none of these emails would be um, um, uh, privileged. You know, if, if I... If I would have been sending emails, you know, as a law professor, you know, if I would have been writing to um, uh, the, the the Biden campaign and saying, look, I'm a law professor. I've studied this stuff. I've got some ideas about how you should respond to these cases that Giuliani is bringing. You know, the, the, I could write them an email like that, but that wouldn't make me um, Biden's lawyer. You know, yeah. so 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 I, I think that I think that that's really the context that that it's 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 it, it, it's best to look at Eastman in. Um, on, and in fact, I, I could say, East, I don't know if you remember this or not, but Eastman during this period in January of 21, um, you know, rather than being Trump's uh, attorney, what he actually was, was was my colleague. I, I don't know if you remember that or not, but he he and I were both visiting together at the University of Colorado Law School at that time. So yeah, he had a full-time job at the University of Colorado where he was on leave from his, his home institution of Chapman University. Um, and he was teaching his classes, you know, and uh, it, it's not, um, you know, it's it's not kind of commensurate with having been um, uh, Trump's uh, attorney at the time. In so other words, that, your 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 hypothetical about yourself is it's not really so much a hypothetical. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's who he was. Yeah, he was he was, you know, he, I mean, he was spending a lot of time in Washington, admittedly, but but he was getting back to Boulder you know, to, to show up for his classes and meet his obligations. And that's where he was employed. He was at this, the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization um, at, at the University of Colorado, where he was the visiting uh, scholar for, for that term. And it was the same term I was out there. So he was actually my colleague. And I, I feel confident that um, people at the, at, that, at the University of Colorado feel like I, I was a better colleague than he was that semester. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, uh, I think they're more glad they had me out there than they had him out there. And well, they, you know, they, maybe yeah. this, this could be your pitch to come this back. Listen, pitch, yeah, I'm come not back. Eastman, right? Like, yeah. I have not brought shame. Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> and and he was uh, ultimately not allowed to keep teaching undergraduates after his role on uh, on, on January twentieth uh, uh, or January sixth came out. Um, yeah, oh, so he so, was teaching undergraduates as well. He was teaching. Yeah, he was actually only teaching undergraduates because mm. the 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 Benson Center is a center at the university. And typically, you know, once they decide who to make their visiting scholar, that person gets a courtesy appointment in the in the relevant college or department. Uh, but the law school actually had refused to give him the courtesy appointment. So he he was uh, he was only teaching the undergraduates um, because well, I'd like to throw myself out there. We can we can yeah. be colleagues at some point. I, I am vastly <laughs> right. better. At East, yeah. and, and I know more constitutional law than he does, yeah. too. I yeah, just would they, like to point that out. Right. So you should you should apply the Benson Center. It's, they generally get very good fellows. And in fact, the the previous time I'd been um, visiting at the University of Colorado there in the fall of 18, uh, the, the Benson Center's fellow was Stephen Presser, who's a um, conservative law professor at Northwestern University Law mm. School, where I went to school. So he had been one of my professors and I was very delighted that he was out there that semester. And uh, and he was one of the professors who he's a legal historian who testified when Bill Clinton was impeached um, at the impeachment trial in favor of the in favor of the impeachment. Um, uh, so. Um, so, yeah, so he so, you know, I, it's a good center, but they they made a big blunder when they took uh, Eastman. But all of that is to say, I think he's going to have problems even establishing that he was Trump's attorney. And there's no attorney client privilege if he's not Trump's attorney. And, and unless except in, except in that slight exception I talked about, where maybe if they had a conversation about whether he could be retained as Trump's attorney, things he learned during that conversation might be privileged. But I, I don't I mean, he this this wasn't that. Uh, now, getting back to the crime fraud exception. Yeah, the, the idea is that. Um, if if I go to an attorney and I say, look, I'm trying to um, c- commit a crime and, and get away with it. So can you advise me on how best to um, get away with this crime so that when I commit the crime, uh, I won't get caught? Um, or if I get caught, I'll, I'll, I'll get off. Uh, th- th- those kinds of conversations between attorney and client are, are not privileged. Um, so in, in this particular case, you pretty much summarized it. But the, the one point I'd want to drill down on more is mm-hmm. um, a lot of the question here about whether this was a crime fraud is ultimately going to have to turn on um, Trump's um, mental state, really, uh, because, you know, if Trump if Trump had a good faith belief that he um, did, in fact, win the election, uh, that there was elect- electoral fraud that um, cost him the election, um, and that he was trying to come up with a legal strategy to vindicate his his, his legitimate rights, um, then, then nothing they talked about would fall within the crime fraud exception. But I think mm. I think the I think the the main um, the main evidence in the House filing that that isn't the case is just. Um, the enormous number of high-ranking members of Trump's own administration who told him that the election was legitimate, right? So, you know, his 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 head of cyber, including the Justice Department, yeah, including Attorney General William Barr, uh, including Vice President Mike Pence, including the the head of cybersecurity in the Department of Homeland Security and the Secretary of Homeland Security, um, including the Acting Secretary of Defense, right? All of these people, when he tried to involve them in his schemes, you know, told him. You know the election was legitimate, and and we're not going to um, uh, get involved in this. And and also, um, you know, he had Giuliani out there litigating these cases. They filed sixty-two cases. They they lost sixty-one of them, and and the only one that they won, it really had to do only with whether um, observers should be allowed in during the recounts. It really had nothing to do with the the uh, um, underlying substantive fraud in the election. Um, and and so you know, sixty-two primarily state and local judges, you know, told him that there was no. Fraud fraud. And he really had no evidence that there was. So um, I think, you know, even though he would probably swear under oath, you know, that there was fraud and that he still believes that to this day, um, it it is um, um, within the range of of what the the judge could find in in this in in, in litigating this attorney uh, client privilege question um, that 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 um, Trump's statements to that effect are um, so implausible that they have to be discredited, you know, that, that, that so many people told him there was no fraud and nobody told him nobody told him uh, any basis for thinking that there was fraud, that, that he's not allowed to just say, well, um, I, I can't hear any of that. And so I'm just going to I'm just going to keep 
carrying out my course of conduct that at a certain point, um, you know, that 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 doesn't um, become credible anymore. In a similar way. So you, in other words, you, you can't have there's a there's a level where an irrational belief can no longer be a defense for pursuing a particular set of outcomes. Right. Because because it would have to be good faith. Right. You have to believe in good faith. That, that, that you're that you're um, doing things that are um, legally justified. Right. And it just can't be good faith if 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 everybody, everybody in his own administration, in the courts, everybody, you know, has informed him that he's wrong. Right. That there's just no no way that he could be maintaining good faith in, in carrying out this this scheme with Eastman. Well, let's kind of expand this, because in addition to what was happening there, we obviously had uh, there appears to be video evidence as a result of a documentary against Roger Stone uh, that's coming a light that they've been doing this for two years. And weirdly, it includes answers to many of the questions uh, that Roger Stone uh, had pled the fifth to during his 90 minutes before uh, the committee, which where all he did was <laughs> right. uh, to plead the fifth right? in, in response to every question. Uh, in, in a couple of particularly disturbing videos, uh, he is using Oath Keepers as member of his own personal security guard and explicitly advising Trump to use his powers to prevent the Electoral College members uh, from coming together to vote and to, to, quote, throw them out. Now, I would like to point out, listeners, by the way, Electoral College members don't actually all fly to Washington, D.C., and therefore you couldn't stop them and, and, and throw them out. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I, but, you know, I, I guess maybe you're trying to do it at, at each individual state, I suppose. I, I mean, that's, that's a little, uh, you know, his knowledge of that. Who knows? I'm not sure. Uh, but nevertheless, the idea that they should, you know, physically and violently keep Electoral College members in some capacity yeah. from right. voting. That, 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 that can only be that can only be criminal. That, that's not the same as filing a lot of cases in court no, no. or trying to convince the members of Congress to try to um, reject the electoral count or things like that. Yeah, it, it, coordinating to, to launch a violent attack during the count and to keep the National Guard away um, can, can only be criminal. Actually, and what, what you, we just said about Roger Stone also reminded me of something I forgot to mention a minute ago, which is um, that I, I mentioned there were three grounds for rejecting the attorney-client privilege claim, but I only talked about two. But hmm. the third one, which is implicated by the Roger Stone video that you talked about, is um, if uh, any any information that the attorney or the client has already publicly disclosed, um, that, that pierces the privilege, right? So, um, hmm. and so to the extent that Trump or, um, or or Eastman themselves have already um, talked about the contents of these same emails that he's trying to um, uh, um, keep shielded now, um, the, 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 the privilege would be forfeited um, by, by the attorney or the client's own public disclosure of the same information. So when you talked about how Stone you know, uh, talked about stuff to a documentarian that he wouldn't talk about to Congress. Well, um, he's not an attorney, of course, but but if he had been, um, that kind of thing would pierce attorney-client privilege. Now, correct me, but can you continue to plead the fifth once you've publicly talked about the thing over which you wish to plead the fifth? Yeah, well, the attorney-client privilege is a little different than the fifth. Um, so, yeah, the, the fifth Someone can plead as much as they want, um, as long as they're 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 saying it would it would incriminate them to answer a question. Okay, now, if they've if if they've already answered the same question elsewhere, then the fact that they've already answered that question elsewhere and the answers they gave can be used against them in a court of law. Um, but but they still, if they don't want to respond to it then, and they want to just say, well, I'm, I'm not going to respond to that. I'm pleading the fifth. They they can keep doing that. Okay, that's what I thought. Well, what we'll, what we'll need in the uh, the uh, the ad supported preview on is this. I I was blown away by uh, Stone's response for w probably what the problem with the video is. I don't know if you saw his response. Did you happen to see that? No, I didn't see it. He his answer is, look, for all I know, this is probably just a bunch of deep fakes about me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not that great. Uh, so uh, good luck with that defense, Roger. Uh, but for listeners, I just want to let you know this is going to end our ad supported free uh, portion of the of, of the politics, guys. We got more stories coming up in just a moment, including the Biden State uh, Union address, the new White House COVID strategy, Texas primary, and cases and more. We'd love for you to be around for that. Uh, if you are a Patreon supporter, uh, you'll be getting that automatically. For those of you who are not, this might be a chance. Maybe you'd 
like to have more, you want to become a supporter, you can head to patreon.com slash politics guys uh, and or support us by going to PayPal at uh, politicsguys.com slash support or through Venmo where we're at politics guys. So again, if you'd like to have the full version of the show, we'd love for you to become a supporter and become part of that process. There's other things you get as well. You can find out more about that at patreon.com slash politics guys or by going to politicsguys.com slash support or on Venmo where we're at politics guys. If you are not in a financial position to support the podcast right now, but you'd like to be able to have access to that full, you can actually reach out uh, to Mike Baranowski. And if you just email them at him at Mike at politicsguys.com, he would be happy to set you up with full access to the fully episode each week. Thank you so much for joining us for the ad supported preview.